0: Well, this is our fourth and final week of going deeper in the book of Joshua. On Sunday mornings, we've been preaching through the book of Joshua, as you know, and then on Sunday nights, for the last few Sunday nights, we've been taking some subjects and kind of going deeper into that book. I've told you before, but let me say it again. The book of Joshua is a fascinating book, fascinating stories. But it also is a book that sometimes raises disturbing questions. For example the first two weeks that we were here digging deeper in Joshua on Sunday nights, we looked at this idea of the conquest of Canaan. Because when you read through the book of Joshua, they're going in and they're having a battle for the very land of Canaan, what we would today call call Israel. But they're battling people who already live there and literally taking their homes from them. And so we talked about that. We took two weeks to talk about that whole process. Last week, we turned our attention to a lady named Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho. And we talked about how God worked in her life and through her life. And again, just one of those disturbing questions as we look at the text in the book of Joshua. Tonight, in this final study, I want to turn our attention to Joshua chapter 7 and the sin of Achan. Open your Bibles with me, Joshua chapter 7. This is another one of those disturbing passages in the book of Joshua. As you're turning there, let me say that this story in chapter 7 has a direct connection to the battle of Jericho in chapter 6. And so let's pick up the story, Joshua chapter 6, beginning with verse 15. There's something I want you to notice here in this text. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. Now now watch what happens. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be, what's that next word, at least the NIV? Say it louder. Devoted. The city and all that is in it, verse 17, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Verse 18, But keep away from, here's the word again, keep away from, the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. The key word I want you to focus on tonight as we dig into the chapter 7 is this word devoted. The devoted things. Now, I was going to have my board up here, and I was going to do a lot of writing tonight, but they're using the board at Discover Mount Airy, so, you know, that's wonderful. I'm glad that, that Brad is actually using that board right now, probably presenting the gospel. So, I'm going to ask you, if you're taking notes, I'm going to ask you to write down some things, alright? I hope that you've got something to write with. I hope you've got a notebook, because rather than write it on the board, I'm going to ask you to write it in your notes. do I want you to write that word, devoted. I'm going to tell you what it means. Because that word devoted is crucial to understanding what happens in chapter 7. The word devoted means the total and irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by totally destroying them. I'll give you that again because I know you're taking notes and then I'll explain it to you. The word devoted, the total and irrevocable giving over things or persons to the Lord often by totally destroying them. Now that sounds odd, so I'm going to say it for a third time. Devoted things. The total and irrevocable. Giving over of things or person to the Lord, often by totally destroying them. The, di- the idea is simply this. If something is devoted to the Lord, it can never be used for something else or by someone else. If it is devoted to the Lord, most of the time, it is to be destroyed so that no one else can use it. It is devoted to the Lord. Now, with that as the context, I want you to look at uh, verse 18, chapter 6, verse 18, and I want you to tell me, answer the question for me, what would happen to someone who took something that was devoted to the Lord, according to verse 18, What's going to happen to someone who takes something that's devoted to the Lord? Tell me what what will happen to them. All right, I think you've given me the right answer. Actually, there's two things in verse 18. Number one, you'll bring about your own destruction, right? If you take the devoted things, you are going to bring about your own destruction. And number two, you will make the entire camp liable to destruction. Look at it in the text. God is so clear. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. In other words, you will not only bring trouble on yourself, you're actually going to bring trouble on the entire country of Israel if you take the devoted things. Would you say that God was pretty clear on that? Absolutely. Now, with that as the background, we come now to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, verse 1, notice how this chapter begins. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. To which we've got to say a big, "Uh uh-oh. Because we know now, right? Because of what we read in chapter 6, verse 18, we know... What's coming? But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. And here it's interesting, the particular Israelite who acted unfaithfully is listed. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. He took some of the devoted things. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now again, I was going to draw this out for you on the board, so I'm going to ask you to draw it out on your notes. Okay? I want you to list these names, and we're going to come back to them. And, and I would do it kind of in a descending order. First of all, Achan. You write that? It's coming straight out of verse 1. Achan. And then kind of stair-step it down. Carmi, And then stair-step it down again. Zimri. And then the next step down is Zerah. And the next step down is Judah. If you've got that outlined on your notes, it'll help you. We're going to use it a little bit later. At this point in the story though, I want you to notice that no one else yet knows what Achan has done. The author of Joshua is giving us crucial information As the reader of the story, he's giving us some crucial information, but nobody else in the story knows about what Achan has done. We know about it because we just read about it. But nobody else in the story yet knows what has happened. So this very first sentence is going to be very significant because we're going to understand the rest of the chapter based on the information that the author reveals to us in the first sentence. But for now, this first verse is a transition between the battle of Jericho, chapter 6, and the battle of Ai, chapter 7. You need to remember that Jericho was, of course, Israel's first victory as they went in to conquer the land of Canaan. This was the first place where God gave them victory, so Jericho was a kind of a first fruits of the land. That's why it was devoted to the Lord. This was the first city they were going to conquer. This was the first city they were, that God was going to bless them. This was the first city that God was going to, to uh, give them victory. And so the spoils from that city, the first city, was supposed to be the first fruits given back to God. So the devoted things were devoted to Him. And everything in that city was to be destroyed because that's what you do with devoted things to the Lord. It cannot be used by anyone else for anything else. Everything in Jericho was devoted to the Lord as a first fruit offering, if you will. So, with that as the background, we pick up the story and we start reading about the second battle. After the battle of Jericho, there was the battle of Ai. Verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. Now when the text says that they had to go up to I that literally was true. Jericho is down in the lower area of of that region. Jericho is down near the Dead Sea, the lowest area sea level in the world, and so Jericho was down near the Jordan River, not far from the Dead Sea. I was up in the mountains, north and west of Jericho, and so they went. They were going to send spies up to I check it out, come back, give us a report, so we'll know how to attack that next city. And it, it appears that when the spies came back, they were kind of full of themselves, because when they came back, it appears that these spies were a little bit more confident than they should have been. Did you see what they said? Verse three. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against I Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. Translation. We don't need the varsity for this one. You can send the JV in on this one. This is not going to be that big of a deal. Can I just say to you, these words, that was a bad idea. Sometimes we can get complacent and overconfident. And that's exactly what happened here. Jericho was such a tremendous victory that it felt like they did it instead of God. It was almost as if they began to take credit for the walls come tumbling down. And so when they went to Ai, they were comparing Ai to Jericho. And it's like, this is not going to be a big deal. We don't even need the whole army. Just send a JV in. They can take care of this one. And so we read in verse 4 and 5. So about 3,000 men went up, that is literally went up into the mountains, but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. And they chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people, the Israelite people, Joshua's people, at this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. In other words, all of a sudden, they didn't have confidence anymore. So, do you, do you remember, some of you who are my age, you remember this phrase, the, the thrill of victory and the... Exactly. Wide world of sports. Isn't that what it was? Every Saturday, wide world of sports, and you'd see the thrill of victory. They're winning, whatever it was. And then the agony of defeat was what? The guy falling off the ski jump, right? In chapter 6, God's people experienced the thrill of victory at Jericho. And in chapter 7, they experienced the agony of defeat at Ai. And there's two fascinating facts about what happened in chapter 7. First of all, and just put this down on your notes, just two fascinating facts. This is the only defeat that the Jews ever suffered in the conquest of Canaan. This is the only battle they lost, if you want to write it that way. By the way, Joshua wasn't there. Do you remember in chapter 1, around verses 5 through 7, God said to Joshua, no one will ever be able to stand up against you. In other words, God says, you're going to win every battle you ever fight. And that happened. Joshua never lost a battle. The only battle that they lost was the battle at Ai, and Joshua wasn't there. Interesting fact number two is this. This is also the only battle where there was a recorded loss of Jewish life. Which is interesting. The battle of Jericho, nobody died on the Israeli side. And at all the other battles that they fought, in the central campaign, in the southern campaign, in the northern campaign, there's no record of any Israelite being killed in battle. None. Except the battle of Ai in chapter 7. And how many of those soldiers were killed? Those Israeli soldiers, what we would call Israeli soldiers. How many of them were killed It tells us in the text. 36. And not only were 36 soldiers killed, but it says that they were chased from the city gate, pushed down the mountain slope. This was a shameful rout, and they were humiliated. What should have been an easy victory turned into a total disaster. And now, now there's 36 graves to dig. Now the people are melting in fear. And now Joshua is wondering, what in the world happened? Remember, Joshua doesn't know what we know. The author of the story tells us the problem in verse 1. But Joshua doesn't know that yet. Joshua doesn't yet know what we know. And he's struggling with how in the world could this happen? When this shocking defeat reached the ears of Joshua, here's how he responded. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes. And he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. And the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. These were signs of intense mourning. These were signs of absolute overcome with grief. Something had gone badly wrong. And Joshua was trying to figure out, What in the world has happened? At this point in the story, you need to remember, only God knows the true explanation. At this point in the story, no one is pointing a finger at Achan. Not even Joshua. Joshua does not know about Achan. He does not know what Achan has done. All he knows is that his army has been defeated and humiliated and there are 36 freshly dug graves. One man disobeyed and there were 36 funerals. One man disobeyed and an entire army was defeated. One man disobeyed and a nation was put to shame. And here's one of the major lessons. Make sure you write this down. Here's one of the major lessons from chapter 7. God's people had to learn, you never sin alone. You never sin alone. If you don't get anything else from chapter 7, if you can just remember that one statement, you will at least know the theme of chapter 7, you never sin alone. And Achan had to learn that lesson the hard way. This is the story of one man's sin that brought trouble on the whole nation of Israel. So here's the first disturbing question from the text. That's what these Sunday night studies are all about trying to wrestle with disturbing questions. And here's the disturbing question from the text. Is it right to, pr- to punish everyone for one man's sin? That's what we've got to wrestle with. Is it right to punish everyone for one man's sin? Well, I would take you back to chapter 6, verse 18 and point two things out to you. That is a very good question, but can I remind you that in chapter 6, verse 18, first of all, God was absolutely clear in His warning. Would you agree with that? God was absolutely clear. There was no second guessing. I wonder what He meant by that. God was absolutely clear in His warning about what would happen if they sinned, if they took the devoted things. The second thing I would say to you is this. God was equally clear that He would hold all of Israel accountable. If someone took the devoted things. He was very clear. That this is not just going to affect one person. This will affect the entire nation. If you take devoted things. And that's why. Chapter 7 verse 1. Begins the way it does. Did you notice when we read it a few moments ago. What chapter 7 verse 1 says. Look at it again. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully. In regard to the devoted things. The Israelites, plural. It doesn't say, but Achan acted unfaithfully. It says, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully about the devoted things. Verse 11 makes it very plain. Verse 11 says this, Israel has sinned. And again, it doesn't say Achan sinned, it says Israel sinned. And and look at the word they as I read verse 11. Look for the word they. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. Pastor Keith, it wasn't they, it was one guy. It was Achan. And yet, God held them all responsible for that one man's sin. And this is where we wrestle with the question, is it right to hold one person responsible? I'm sorry, to hold everyone responsible for one person's disobedience. If I had my board up here, this is where we would write it I would write on the board these words, The Law of First Mention. Put that in your notes. Put it in capital letters. Underline it. The Law of First Mention. Highlight that in your notes. The Law of First Mention. The Law of First Mention is a guideline that some people use in studying Scriptures. It's a hermeneutical principle. It's a, it's a, a principle you can use in understanding the Bible the law of the first mention says that to understand a particular word or to understand a particular doctrine, look in the Bible and see where it's mentioned the first time. Because usually where it's mentioned for the first time, it's, it's presented in its simplest and clearest form. If you're studying, for example, the idea, the concept of blood, where is blood mentioned the first time in the Bible? So that's the law of first mentioned. Where is it mentioned the first time in the Bible? And if you understand where it's mentioned the first time, that becomes the clear foundation to help you understand how it's used throughout the Bible, the law of the first mention. So to fully understand this complex theological problem that we have in Joshua chapter 7, I think we can to some degree apply the law of first mention. What I mean by that is this. This is the first mention, this sin of Achan. This is the first mention of sinful rebellion in the book of Joshua. i put this in context. What's the book of Joshua about? The book of Joshua is about God's people going into the promised land so they could establish a nation, so they could bless the world. The first mention of sin, of people rebelling against this God, is in chapter 7. So in the first six chapters, what you have in the first six chapters is the people trusting God and the people obeying God and the people following God. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, you see the people of God being the people of God. They're listening to God. They're trusting God. They're following God. They're obeying God. For six chapters, they're doing that. And because of that, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. God's doing amazing things among them. Because they're listening to God and following God and obeying God. Chapter, fir- chapter 7 is the first mention of them disobeying God. And God takes disobedience seriously. At Jericho, God's people learned the value of trusting God, right? At Jericho, chapter 6, they learned the value of trusting God because they saw the walls fall and they conquered the city. At Jericho, they learned the value of trusting God. But at I, they learned that there is a cost involved when we rebel against God. Before going any further, let's pay attention to how this chapter ends. Actually, let's look at how it begins and how it ends. Let's look at the first verse of chapter 7 and the last verse of chapter 7. Look what it says. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan and all those things are list, his family line is listed. The last sentence of verse 1. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Note that. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. One of these days, I I may do a study simply on the anger of God. The holy anger of God against sin. So it says the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, if you go to the last verse of the chapter, verse 26, it says, the last verse of the chapter, over Achan... They heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from His fierce anger. You see that? Then the Lord turned from His fierce anger. This whole chapter is designed to teach God's people. In that day, as well as in our day, it is a solemn warning not to take God lightly. A solemn warning not to take God lightly. So let's go back to the text real quickly and pick up the story. I'm going to do a lot of reading now. I want you to follow carefully as I read beginning to verse 6. Joshua, when he gets the news, Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? To deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? God, is that the reason you brought us across the Jordan? Did you bring us over here just to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord. Verse 8. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Keep reading. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. Which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. And that is why the Israelites cannot stand against the enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Then he gives them this instruction. Go consecrate the people and tell them, Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted among you, O Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, this is Joshua speaking to the people, in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan the clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family and the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, we're going to find out who took the devoted things. I bet Aiken didn't sleep good that night. I doubt he slept a wink. I doubt he, he slept at all. It's interesting, God's chosen method for revealing the guilty party would have been very dramatic and would certainly have added to Achan's dread and to Achan's apprehension. So the next morning... All God's people come together, and we don't know how God pointed out, how God said it's this one. We don't know how God did it, but we do have this information in verses 16 through 18. By the way, remember on your notes where you wrote that stair step? Now we're coming back to it. So if you've got your notes, uh, get ready, because I, again, I was going to write it on the board for you, but I'm going give, to give it to you. You write it on your notes. Verse 16. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes. Judah was taken. So on your notes, you've got Judah down on the bottom. And beside Judah, write the word tribe in parentheses. All the people came together and the tribe of Judah was chosen. The clans, verse 17. The clans of Judah. Then out of the tribe of Judah, the clans of Judah came forward. And he took the Zerahites. So beside the word, or the name Zerah, if you're taking notes on that stair step, write in parentheses the word clan. Then out of that clan, let's see what happens. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. So beside Zimri, put in parentheses, family. Let's pause for a moment. Just talk to me real quickly. What do you think was going through Achan's mind right now? Would the word terrified, would that kind of summarize it? It's getting closer and closer and closer, isn't it? So now we're at the family level, which there were lots of families in the clan, the the, the, the family of Zimri. Verse eighteen: Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan son of Carmi, the son of Zeri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Beside Carmi, I would write the word "father" in parentheses because the father was identified. And then the father, after the father was identified, Achan was the one who was. I put in my parentheses on my notes the guilty party. Achan was. The guilty party. And now, everyone knew who was responsible for the 36 graves and the defeat at Ai. We read the story, verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give Him the praise. Tell me what you have done, and do not hide it from me. Achan, to his credit, Came clean. He told the truth. Verse 20, Achan replied, It is true. I have sent the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I have done. And when I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and they're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. And they ran to the tent. This was so important. The messenger is running to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent, silver underneath. They took the things from the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, Donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over again, the they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned His fierce anger. Then the Lord turned from His fierce anger. Therefore, the place has been called the Valley of Aquar ever since. Aquar means trouble. It's been called the Valley of Trouble ever since. Uh, We're just about out of time, so I'm going to have to really summarize this for you very quickly. There are many things, learn from this story, but can I point out a few obvious lessons for you in conclusion? Here's the first one. Sin is rebellion against God. It is rebellion against God. It says in verse 20, I'm just going to have time to read it. Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. When you sin, you don't just make a mistake. When you sin, you are acting in rebellion against the Lord God. Every time you sin, it is a sin against the Lord God. Achan knew what God had commanded, but he chose to ignore what God said and do what he, cho- what he wanted to do. And that is rebellion against God. I wish I had more time there. Number two, sin is enticing. Did you see how he describes it in verse 21? Here's how Achan says, when I saw, when when my eyes saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. Because sin is very enticing. There's a natural progression. I saw, I coveted, and I took it. Sin will lead you further than you ever intended to go, and it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Number three, sin is costly. I'm going to have to skip some of this because we're out of time, but of course you can read the story again, but you understand it was costly to Achan. It was costly to his family. It was costly to the entire nation of Israel. You might say, well, Keith, this just seems so harsh. Perhaps it is in one way, but maybe we've just lost our sense of God's holiness. Maybe we've lost our sense of what sin really is. That sin is rebellion against the holy God. And if you'll remember the law of first mention, this was the first time that rebellion against God was displayed as, he, as His people come into the promised land. And God at the, God often, at the first time, dealt with sin severely. Let me give you two examples. At the Garden of Eden, perfect place, sin entered the world, and God said, the day you sin, you will surely die. God dealt severely with sin and cast them out of the garden and eventually they died physically. They died spiritually that day and they died uh, eventually physically. God dealt seriously with sin in the garden of Eden. Go to the New Testament to the book of Acts. And when you go to the New Testament, again, the, the law first mentioned, you go to the New Testament and there was a man, as the church was being born, there was a man who lied about some money he was given. He was giving to the church. And he and his wife dropped dead that day. Because God dealt severely with the sin that was in the midst of His people. He did it in creation. He did it at I, as the nation of Israel was being formed. He did it in the days of the New Testament, as the church was being born. Perhaps we need to remember not to take God so lightly. Perhaps we need to remember not to take sin so lightly. Because I can tell you this, He still is a holy God. I'll close with this idea. Do you remember I told you sometime back in this series that Joshua is just the Hebrew name for Jesus? Jesus? Jesus in the Greek language, it's Joshua in the Hebrew. Sin must be dealt with and sin must be paid for. And thankfully, when we come to the New Testament, there was another Joshua, Jesus. Sin must be dealt with. And the death penalty, or the penalty for sin, is death. And the new Joshua, Jesus, who came into the world, Thank God he paid the penalty for our sin. And he deserves and he demands our faithfulness. He deserves and he demands our allegiance. Because he is a holy God who still abhors sin in our lives. Let's pray about that. We thank you, Father, that though your anger burned against Achan, there was a day when your anger ended. And though your anger burns against us when we are in sin, there is a day when we can put our faith in Jesus, that he paid the penalty for our sin, and we can experience your grace. We can experience your mercy. We can experience your love. Thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for teaching us through your word. And we give you all the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen.